Hi, I'm Kimberly Beekman, host of Grit or Gift, a podcast by Miraflora Naturals. Miraflora is committed to helping people be their best naturally. On this show, we interview people who have risen to the top of their fields and ask the question, is it hard work or natural talent that defines success? My guest today is Dr. Ryan Rhodes, one of the foremost experts on beef in the world. He's renowned for producing some of the most marbled Wagyu in the United States and is a beef extension specialist at Colorado State University. Miraflora Naturals has just partnered with his company, Elevation Beef, to create Miraflora Wagyu. In this episode, we'll explore the fascinating origins of this special breed of cattle and learn what makes it so delicious. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Glad to be here. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, tell me a little bit about um, where you grew up. You are like the country's foremost expert on beef, and we'll get into all that in a little while. But I just kind of wanted to get a little bit of your background and and kind of understand how you got interested in beef and um, where it all started. Yeah, I, I grew up in um, uh, the Midwest, uh, specifically Indiana on a, oh, a small family farm there and, and a diversified livestock operation. And so, you know, had had pigs and sheep and, and cattle and, and uh, grew up showing um, in 4-H and FFA and whatnot and just developed a love and a passion for, for livestock in general. Um, and then uh, I was always jealous of, of kids uh, when I was growing up of kids from the West or the, the Southwest um, because um, cattle and ranching and, and that sort of um, thing was, was a hobby, you know, where I was from. And it was a lifestyle in, in Texas and Oklahoma and Colorado and, you know, in the West. And so I always had a sort of an eye to, to kind of move that way. And so... Um, yeah, went to Oklahoma State, spent some time in Oklahoma, spent some time working on a, a very big ranch in Oklahoma. Um, and that's kind of where, that's really where it really started. Um, my, my love for ranching and beef was was that ranch in Oklahoma. Worked there for four or five years while I was doing my undergrad. Um, and then decided to continue to, to go to school. And so I uh, went to Texas A&M. Um, I've got a master's and a, and a PhD in um meat science and beef production and economics, tried to mix all of those sort of together. Uh, and so spent a lot of time in College Station, spent eight years getting advanced degrees there and was fortunate. Um, that's really where my love for, for specifically Wagyu came along. Um, there's two universities in the country, um, primarily two universities in the country that do Wagyu research and Texas A&M and Washington State are those those two. And I was fortunate to, to you know, get into a lab and an advisor um, that was working on Wagyu research. And so that's where most of my training comes from. Um, and so saw some really neat, interesting things there. Developed a love and a respect for the breed. Um, graduated from there. And my first job uh, out, of, out of school was at the King Ranch Institute in, in South Texas, part of Texas A&M Kingsville. I was faculty there for, for seven years and did research and projects and whatnot on, on the King Ranch down there, a million acres in South Texas. It was a really neat, wow. really neat experience. Yeah. And then... Um, with the, King, with the yep. King Ranch, 
I mean, that's the most famous ranch there is, right? I mean, I, I watch Yellowstone and it's of course, King Ranch all, yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like being being there? And a million acres is, is so huge. I can't even comprehend that. Yeah. Um, so I, I was there for seven years. Um, now, granted, you know, I was at the university. It was a department in the university. And, and um, uh, we still had to ask permission to go on the ranch. It wasn't like I had full access to it. But uh, yeah, a million acres is big. Uh, it's bigger than the state of Rhode Island. I mean, just to kind of put it into perspective, yeah. uh, it basically takes up, you know, like three counties in South Texas. Uh, I probably saw in seven years, I probably saw, and I have, uh, this could be wrong, but I probably saw 5% of the ranch, right? In seven years, that's how big it is. Um, I did, I honestly woke up, <laughs> I tell everybody this, I woke up every day. I love my job there. Um, but I didn't necessarily like living there. Um, yeah. And so I woke up every day going, Captain King, really? This is where this is where you want a million acres? Because um, it was awful. It was, you know, it was 115 degrees and 90% humidity and bugs and everything bites you and sticks you. And it, it's just a really rough environment. It may rain uh, three inches one year and 60 inches the next, you know. And so it was a it was a tough, tough environment. Um, it is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, opportunity came up at uh, Colorado State. I went and visited, and it was it just fell in love with the 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 wet, not you know, the weather and the environment and the the landscape here. Um, some really progressive beef producers in this in this state, and so uh, we moved here seven seven years ago. Ironically, it's, I'm on sevens here. Um, seven years ago, and uh, I'm the beef currently the beef extension specialist for the state of Colorado um, and then raise some, some wagyu on the, on the side. So, wow. And what does it mean? To, what is, what does beef extension specialist mean? Yeah. So, um, so universities do three things primarily, right? So teaching, obviously everybody's familiar with that one um, in the classroom to students and then research obviously um, is a major, you know, portion of what we do. And then the third piece, which people aren't as familiar with, is the extension piece. And basically what your job is, is to extend the research that's going on on campus to the community or to beef producers, right? In my case, beef producers specifically. And so I, I develop programs and I work with beef producers to, to help um, get them uh, answer questions, um, get them the research that they need to, to hopefully be better at what they do, more profitable at what they do. Um, that so, is so cool. I mean, your niche, I, I did kind of glance over uh, some of the research that you have done with the university. And I mean, you do everything from, you know, a lot of economics research and then research into drought and all that stuff. It's super interesting. Uh, the beef industry is complex, right? And that's, yeah. that's kind of the fun part of it. And more specifically, I, I live in a state or I help producers in a state where the environment is drastically different from one side of the state to the other. And you can't say that most places. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Eastern Plains is more like a Kansas sort of environment. And the Western Slope um, is mountains and snow and a, a totally different um, challenge. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of uniqueness to, to this state and to the challenges that producers have across this state. And the other thing people don't realize is uh, Colorado's number 10 in terms of beef production. So it's a big, a big beef producing state. Uh, we have 13,000 beef producers that I try to 
try to help as best as I can. Um, and yeah, a lot, the biggest feed yard in the world or in the United States, I should say, is, is right here in, in Colorado down the road. Um, wow. So yeah, a lot of neat things here in this state. That's so cool. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, you were talking about the environment and, and I'm sure, you know, you have to approach ranching so differently, you know, between the Eastern Plains and the Western Slope. Have you had any insight? I mean, global warming, all the weather patterns are changing, you know, the, the drought some places get, gets worse. And I, I don't know, it, have you noticed a lot of changes in the last 10 years as far as like the environment goes and, and how people have had to adapt to changing weather? Is that, is that been a real factor for you? Um, yeah, I think, and, and so I can only go, I've, I haven't been here a long time. Um, so yeah. I can only go by kind of what old timers say. Yeah. Right. And I, I think, you know, I'm not a, a weather person, but, um, weather changes. Right. And so, yeah. you know, the cause of that is, is up to anybody's own interpretation. Um, yeah. but, but weather, weather changes. Um, I think, you know, the thing I've seen since I've been here is, and on both sides, East or West, um, is the the uh, the intensity of, of events so whether it's drought or rain or um, cold or or whatever um, the the in, or, or just hot right yeah we've had a few of those years the intensity of the events seem to be have increased right yeah and so if it's hot it's really hot for a long time yeah um, you don't just get these like you used to you get these spells. Of, of hot and then, you know, to kind of go back to normal. Um, and so that, yeah, that has created a, a lot of, cause, cause we are, you know, as, as a beef industry, we are reliant on, on weather. Yeah. Right? Um, for the most part, especially in the cow calf business, uh, if it doesn't rain, you know, we're in trouble. Um, and, and that affects hay prices and that affects feed prices and affects cattle prices. And, and so it, it all trickles down from there. And so, um, yes, I've heard, uh, to answer your question, yes, I've heard from old timers that it seems obviously to be changing because it does change, but but it's really the intensity of the events, uh, whether it's drought for, you know, that drought, drought has some sort of connotation that there's an end in sight to it, right? Um, yeah. and, and I think we should even maybe even change our perspective about about that um, and just realize that we are, we, we live in a high desert here and it's an arid environment and and drought is just a it, it's just going to be dry all the time right except with exception of 2023 we got lucky um yeah. hopefully that continues um so yeah it's it's uh yes i have seen that yeah that's super interesting um i want to ask you you have the record for the highest <laughs> marbled wagyu in the country for producing that and before we get into that, let's just explain what Wagyu is uh, for the folks that might not know. Yeah, so, um, so, so, yeah, there's a lot of myths about what Wagyu is. Everybody's heard the term. Yeah. But very few probably truly understand what it, what it is or what it means. Um, and it's, it's simple. It's a, it's a breed of cattle, a breed meaning um, uh, similar to everybody's heard of Angus. Or Holstein, right? So those are breeds of cattle. And so Wagyu is a breed of cattle native to Japan. I think most people recognize recognize that. 
Um, and so it's not, I hear it all the time, it's not a particular cut of beef. It's not a feeding method, you know, feed them beer or massage them, right? Right. Um, it's not, uh, and it's not Kobe. Um, Kobe right. Obviously, Kobe has to be Wagyu to be Kobe, but it's not, the, that, that has its own definition and its own parameters around it. Um, so yeah, a lot of confusion. Wagyu actually literally means um, Japanese beef or Japanese cow, right? That's what the, the term means. Yep. Um, so yeah, I hope that helps kind of yeah. clarify what what it is. Um, how it got here is back in the early back in the early nineties, I believe. Um, it was just a short window too that that Japan actually let the United States um, import some some genetics. And then they quickly realized, they shut it off. They quickly realized that, um, well, that's maybe not a smart move because, you know, um, these guys are going to get really good at it in the United States. And then all of a sudden we don't have a competitive advantage anymore. So we're working off in the United States, American Wagyu is working off of, of a short window of imported genetics from Japan. And over the last 30 years, um, we've made amazing strides in getting, um, you, know, you know, better quality genetics here in the United States, um, better beef in, here in the United States. And yeah. something that's really, I mean, it has really caught fire in the last, I don't know, 10 years, probably. Um, and I think there are only, I think, 5,000, according to the Google, uh, 5,000 purebred Wagyu in the country right now. Does that well, sound yeah. Right? So it depends on where you look. You got to be careful with, with Google, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I, the better way to say that is it's still it's still very rare in this country, right? It's still very much a niche um, breed, and and I always say it's it, you know it's less what you can argue about the, the decimal point, but it's less than one percent of, of our of the U.S. beef supply currently. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I, the last estimate I saw is somewhere between thirty and forty thousand purebred okay. or full blood. Um, and you have to be careful with purebred or full blood too. So full blood has to come from, so it has to be an embryo from Japan. That's the only way you can get a full blood. Purebred is, is us over the last 30 years breeding that animal up to, um, 15, 16. or almost a full blood. Um, so we have, yeah, so it's still, yeah. In the millions and millions ahead of cattle in the United States, it's, it's less than 1% of the total. So that's incredible. And how many Wagyu uh, cattle do you have on your ranch? So we we're small. We're we're a small yeah. guy, right? Um, uh, so we we uh, I started with seven head uh, four four almost five years ago, because um, uh, we're in a unique. Maybe this is more than you need to know, but we're in a. Uh, I, I thought I knew, but I wasn't sure. But we're in a very unique um, situation here on the front range of Colorado. Uh, meaning, one, we have, um, we have access to uh, USDA uh, processing facilities. I've got five of them within 100 miles of me here, and, and not many people in the United States can say that. Um, and then, uh, obviously, Fort Collins to Denver to Colorado Springs, uh, people make a lot of money, um, are looking for local product, are looking uh, to, to, to spend money on a good beef eating experience. And so... We, we started with seven head to try, try to figure out the whole process and to figure out whether there was demand there and realize there was and have, have um, it, at least in my standards, have grown fairly 
quickly. Um, when you're talking about, we're a hundred percent direct to consumer, right? hundred um, percent. And we now have a hundred, we try to keep 120 animals uh, or cows on our, in our inventory now. And so 120 head of, of direct to consumer beef is quite a bit of, of beef. Now in the grand scheme of things, I've got a feed yard over here, 30 miles away from me that has a one-time head capacity of 125,000, right? Whoa. So yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not, we're, we are not feeding the world, but we are providing um, at least the front range and a few surrounding states, you know, customers that are looking for high quality beef with high quality beef. So, yeah. And you, um, the way that they, that they sort of the, assess the quality of beef is called the beef marbling scale. And your Wagyu consistently ranks like six to eight um, on the marbling scale, which I know this probably doesn't mean much for people that are listening because they don't know, but that's really, really high. It basically is a very high uh, level of intramuscular fat, which gives the beef its flavor and its texture. And tell me a little bit about you know, how you get such good quality uh, beef from your cattle and kind of what are some of your methods and um, yeah, just like, you know, why, why how you raise the cows matters so much. Yeah. Well, and it starts with, first of all, if you don't, I probably missed this in, in the why Wagyu, but the, their, their unique ability and the reason I respect the breed so much is their ability to, to put on intramuscular fat or, yeah. or marbling, right? So I guess we should back up there. Like that's their, that's their superpower, right? That's, yes. they, they have, they, without getting into the science too much, right? This was the research back at, at A&M that I was a part of. Why do they do that? Why, 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 are, why does that breed specifically do that? Um, well, they have, they have a, a gene that most other breeds don't have, and they also have elevated activities of enzymes that other breeds don't have that gets into the cellular level of why they do what they do. Um, but that's their ability. And so it was, it's important to me. The, reason we, the other reason we started this is I've also seen a lot of bad, poor quality Wagyu on the market. There's a lot of folks that think you can just throw a Wagyu bull out with your cows and all of a sudden you've got, you know, you can label it Wagyu and all, and you can. Um, and, and all of a sudden you've got this amazing product and that's not true because there's as much variation in quality in the Wagyu breed as there is in any other breed. Um, just the high, the, the top is a lot higher than any other breed, but the low is still low. Yeah. Um, and so we got in um, because uh, no, the, the this breed is meant to marble, and it's meant to be the highest quality beef product in the world. And so it needs to be done correctly. Um, and, and my little 120 head hopefully contributes to, to doing it correctly. And, and yes, you're right. So um, I'm fortunate because I've been able to research and study and, and know the methods that it takes to get you know, to a certain quality. Um, uh, and, and we have been able to, it's been trial and error and blood, sweat, and tears. But over the last, you know, five years, we have been able to, to um, uh, sort of define our process and have extremely consistent results in terms of, of meeting that, that quality grade that you mentioned, that six to eight BMS 
score. I mean, I can explain some more of that if we if we need to. Um, we don't use the the BMS score necessarily. Um, an American consumer wouldn't know necessarily what that is because because we go by in the United States we go by select, choice, and prime. Right. Um, those are our three grades. As you walk into the grocery store, that's what you're going to see labeled on a product. Um, the problem when you get into the Wagyu world is, and if you do it right, um, uh, the the marbling level in our product is is significantly above prime. Um, and yeah, so, prime is what like a three on the yep, scale. Yeah. Yep. So the beef marbling score, which is a Japan thing, and that's how they score their beef over there. Um, it ranges from one to twelve. Um, Twelve being your 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 A five Kobe, right? Your A five Kobe, um, more white than red. I mean, literally, um, like a stick of butter. Wow. Uh, yeah, and and you know, hundred dollars an ounce, uh, or maybe two hundred dollars an ounce. I'm not sure what it's going for now. Uh, so very rare on that on that end. And then um, a one, two, or three is more like um, choice and prime. In, in the United States. And so our prime, our highest in the United States is a three out of 12 on the, on the BMS scale. And so we, we strive for that, that six to eight range right there in the middle. So you're, you're teetering on, um, eight is teetering on that, 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 you know, Kobe, that eight to 12 sort of range. Um, but our goal has always been, our goal has always been, I want somebody to, I, I can't, I don't know if you've ever had an A5 ribeye or seen it, but no. it is the reason they sell it by the ounce is because one person cannot eat that entire thing. It's impossible. It's just, it's too rich. It's too buttery. It's too heavy. Yeah. Um, and so my, our goal is that six to eight range provides somebody with, you can eat the entire ribeye, right? And it's the most amazing experience you could possibly have you know, and eat the whole thing. Um, and so that's kind of, we've landed in that, that sweet spot of, and most, you know, most American Wagyu, honestly, is is closer to a three or a four, not much above prime. And so to get to three or four grades above prime, um, now I'm answering your question. Sorry, I'm, I had to circle back to it. So how do you get to that consistent six to eight deal? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's several things, but it starts, and I've, I've hinted at this, it starts with you have to identify high quality genetics, right? And that goes back to my, you can't just throw a Wagyu bull out on some cows um, and expect to get a six or an eight BMS score. So it starts with high quality genetics and that's both on the sire side. So we use full blood, uh, Kuroji, um, black, um, Tajima genetic lines. Um, and we, we were consistent to that. So it starts on the sire side. And then it also starts on the cow side um, and I've seen this because I had to learn this the hard way. Um, we, we only use, we will only use Angus or Red Angus on the maternal, the maternal side. Any other breed in the United States tends to, um, tends to drag the marbling level that you get from the Wagyu bull um, down too much. And so Angus, Angus and Red Angus are our highest marbling breeds in the United States. So that's what we use on the maternal side. Um, so it starts there. Uh, and, and then it's, um, it's, so then it's, then it's about the, the feeding process. Right. Um, and so, uh, so low, our goal, our feeding process is what we call, I call it low and slow. 
Um, and I've, I've learned the hard way here too. Uh, you can't push, you can't push these, these, these animals, um, uh, and reach the genetic potential that they have. Um, and a lot of people, this is where else a lot of people go wrong is, is they want to push them and, and, you know, it's all about turnover and it's about how fast we can put them through our system, which is how our, our beef system is designed, right? It's about efficiency. Can't be efficient with these guys. So it's low and slow. We, we, uh, we don't push them. Uh, we, we feed a lot of, um, high energy feed stuffs. And so we include uh, wet distillers grain from breweries in our diet, uh, which keeps them on feed and also increases the energy um, in that feed stuff. Uh, and then we feed, we'll, we'll feed, you know, four, at least 425 days on feed. Now you compare that to, that may not sound like anything, but in the normal beef supply chain, uh, uh, an animal may be on feed 120, 150 days tops, right? And so we're almost, what? three times that, right? Um, so yeah, it's a slow, it's a slow process. Um, and we, we also go to heavier endpoints or heavier finished weights. Again, all trying, all of this stuff has to, has to happen to reach that six to eight BMS score. And if you mess up along the line at any point, you're, you're not, you're not going to reach that. And so we're very particular about, about the process. That's amazing. And also, uh, very time consuming. I mean, there's no, it's no wonder that it's expensive because it should well, be. You know? yeah, yeah. And that's, that's yeah. the, so it's all of that. It's, it's the yeah. genetics are expensive. Um, and the, the, the feed, the inputs are expensive. The time is expensive. Yeah. Everything just adds up. Um, but, but if, if you want as a consumer, if you want this product, you're not worried you're, you're usually not worried about whether it's expensive or not, right? You're a, yeah. you're a beef enthusiast. You're a beef lover. Um, you can afford. You can afford to make choices. And and if you want to, you you want to put a high quality protein on your plate. You're gonna. This is the choice you're gonna make, right? Yeah. And it's interesting. I was wondering if it's the same situation with the beef. And I have had your beef, and it is so amazing. I mean, the difference is really, really distinct. You know, I'm no expert, but I knew that that tasted really, really good. It was the best steak I've ever eaten. Um, and I just have a question about, you know, I, I go to my local, um, like little organic community shop to get my eggs and things like that, because I do think that there's such a difference in taste from, you know, chickens that are able to run around and are happy and live a good life. Like there's definitely a difference in, in the produce. Um, is there a similar thing with beef? Like, you know, if you have a happy cow that has a wonderful life and, you know, gets Colorado sunshine and fresh air and good water and great food. I mean, that, that matters, right. In the quality of beef. Yeah. And, and again, it's every day, right. We, we try to do whatever we can to make sure that that animal can reach that six to eight BMS scoring yeah. point and stress what you're talking about here. Right. I don't know about happy. I, I can't quantify happy, right. happy right. life. Right. right. Um, but, but stress, we know stress um, negatively impacts marbling. Right. And it negatively impacts their, their um, feed conversion or um, uh, feed intake, right? So all of these things, you know, if you're if you have stressful events, um, are 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 pulling down, right? Are pulling down on that that ability to achieve 
that goal. So it absolutely plays into a better, because what, what does marbling do? What does intramuscular do? Well, it adds tenderness, it adds juiciness, and it adds flavor to the product. And so if we're doing things that, that pull that marbling level down, then you're impacting the flavor, right? So, I mean, you can get into the weeds here a little bit on, on like, diff, you can feed them different diets, and does that change the, the flavor profile? Um, yes, probably, right? And so the brewers, there may be something to the, the brewer's grain that we feed that's impacting the flavor slightly, uh, but it's really convoluted when you start getting into that kind of stuff because everybody yeah. views flavor differently. Yeah. And so it's hard to, it's really hard to gauge that. Um, so we're just going, we're going for that. As long as you're putting the marbling level in there, you're going yeah. to get that rich, buttery, beefy flavor um, that, that we're looking for. So, yeah. And the other interesting thing about um, that buttery quality of Wagyu is the, the fat itself is much healthier for you than yes. traditional beef fat, right? Yep. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, a bit about yep. that. And so so this plays in. So my wife is the reason we're so passionate about this breed again is I, I'm passionate about beef and, and raising the if I'm gonna do something, it's gonna be the top one percent, right? That's just that's just how that's just how I wanna do it. Um, and then my wife is a registered dietitian, and so she's worried about, you know, okay, if we're gonna eat beef, then it needs to be the healthiest beef on the planet too. And so this is win win for us. Um, so yeah, you're right. The, without, again, without getting into the science of things, but, um, that, that intramuscular fat has a different fatty acid composition than normal other breed, say an Angus fatty acid composition. Again, it goes back to why you are different. They're designed different. They have different enzymes. They have different gene expressions and they convert, they convert. So beef is typically very high in steric acid, which is a saturated fat. And the Wagyu have the ability to convert steric acid, saturated fat, to unsaturated or oleic acid, um, which is a healthy, which is a healthy fat. And so, um, like I mean, you'll see oil, reports. Right? What's that? It's like that in olive oil, right? Yeah, that exactly. Yep, yeah. yep. So mono, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, healthy, healthier fats. They have the enzyme that converts those um, in the muscle, right? And so, so that that intramuscular fat is just loaded with good good, healthy fats. Um, well, it, for instance, you can tell, um, you can you can prove it to yourself. So if you take a normal piece of beef and lay it on a plate at room temperature, the fat is, is still hard, right? If you take a Wagyu piece of meat and you leave it at room temperature, the fat will actually start to melt. So that's how you know that it, ha it has more monounsaturated fatty acids. And um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, a lower melting point, right? So that's yep. how you can know. And, and just a side fact too, I was on a, I was on a, just to prove, I was on a, uh, a human health study. I was an experimental unit um, and I had to eat Wagyu ground beef for lunch every day for like six weeks or something like that, right? Replace what I was normally eating. And I have high cholesterol just by nature, but I, but I'm diet sensitive to cholesterol. And so if I change my eating habits, I can actually lower my cholesterol level. So at the end of that six weeks, I lowered my cholesterol level by 80 points by just replacing Wagyu beef. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. So, so not everybody can do that. You have to be diet. I mean, there's a lot of factors there, right? But, but it is, so that just to prove there's been lots of studies on Wagyu beef and human health connection. 
And that just proves that um, it is a healthier, it's more fat, right? But fat is good if it's the right kind of fat. And so very, very healthy fat in, in Wagyu beef. Yes. That is incredible. And it's not very often that the most delicious option that we can have in life is also better for you, right? Are you kidding me? Right? Like I, I got to eat ground, Wagyu ground beef for lunch every day? Yeah. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch briefly on the history of Wagyu is so, so interesting to me too, because it's like they, that line of cattle remained so pure in Japan in part just because it was in Japan, because it's an insular country. They wouldn't allow imports or exports. It never, they never, you know, crossbred with any other uh, cattle, which is so fascinating that like only on this island could this beautiful species, you know, evolve. Like, I, I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's probably other people that know way more about the, the history of, of the breed, right? But yeah. it is, so they, essentially they were bred in, in, and this is not just, you know, since 1990 or whatever, right? We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years. They were bred in isolation, um, not and, and not necessarily, I, I, th I think it was not intentional, it was a result of just what they were breeding for. So they were work animals, right? For, for I mean, nobody cared about marbling 200 years ago, right? Right, right. Um, but, but that's... But the Japanese people, I don't think, even ate beef when way back yeah, when. Yeah, exactly. They, they, were work, they were work animals. And so yeah. you can see old pictures of, of Wagyu, and they have these big, that big ox-like shoulders, and then, very, then they're very skinny and slender, you know, the rest of their body. And that's what they wanted because they need they were... They needed big shoulders because they were work animals. Yeah. And the marbling was like a secondary thing that, that just happened um, because, because since they used, I think this is my understanding, since they used, I could be wrong, since they used them for work animals, right? Um, so, so when an animal, um, when, it, when the diet doesn't necessarily meet its requirements, um, it will pull from fat reserves, Right. And so over time, um, the animal designed itself to pull from its fat reserves because, it, the, you know, the diet couldn't meet its strenuous work level needs. And so that's where the, this really intense marbling in the muscle came from because they needed it as an energy source to pull, pull from. At least that's my, that is my um, interpretation of, of how it happened because, again, they weren't selecting for marbling necessarily. Um, and then once, you know, in the last, um, what, 50, 60, whatever, how many years they have, um, okay, marbling is economically important, right? And so now, now that is actually, you know, obviously the number one goal. And, and that's what we select for now. But it was a, it was sort of a, a secondary trait that, that just happened because of, of something else they were trying to select for. So that is so fascinating. That's super interesting. Yeah. But you can do that. You can make fast progress when you're, when you're, you know, isolated like that. And, and so it's like the dairy industry. The dairy industry is only concerned about one metric, milk production. So 95% of the dairy industry uses the top one, the, the top bowl, whoever has the highest milk number, right? That's the one they use. Um, and so that's a similar situation over there is, 
they, whoever was the highest marbling sire line, that's the one they focused on, and they were able to make you know fast fast genetic improvement to get to where we are today. So that's so interesting. And then with Kobe beef, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, <coughs> Kobe beef actually comes from Kobe in Japan, right? Like it has to be from that actual place in order for it to be Kobe, but yep. it is also Wagyu, like, yep. of yep. course. So, yeah, so, yeah, so a, a lot of misconceptions there. Um, uh, so if you ever see, if you ever see um, American Kobe, if that's, if that's ever labeled on a product, then that is false. That, yeah. that it, it's impossible. So it's like, I tell people it's like champagne or bourbon. It has to come from, in bourbon's case, right? Or a certain region, even in Kentucky, uh, or, or I don't know much about bourbon, but it has to come from that place, right? To be yeah. labeled that. And so Kobe is the same thing. It has to come from the that prefixture. Um, I think it's the Hyogo prefixure, right? Kobe's maybe a... a a smaller unit within that prefixure. Um, but yeah, it has to come from there, has to be born and raised in that prefixure. And then there's other requirements that are set forth. Like it has to, it has to be in that BMS score eight to 12 range, right. To be labeled Kobe. Um, and then I can't remember if there's anything, if there's anything else, but the biggest one is that it has to come from there only. Right. Totally. And, and, I don't, I don't, I've never seen, now we've heard the myths of, of, uh, well, they feed them, they feed them beer and they massage them, right. Right? right? And that's, that's Kobe. I don't know that that's necessarily a requirement to be Kobe. It's just part of their process to get right. to that, that eight to 12. Remember, we're trying to do everything every day to get that animal into that, to meet their genetic potential for marbling yeah. and feeding them beer. And massaging, massaging them over in Japan helps reach that goal. Um, so the beer, the beer. Um, what, what happens to you when you drink alcohol? I get the munchies, right? <laughs> and so you think about over there, they're feeding these cattle for 500 plus days on feed. And so how do you get an animal to continue to eat for 500 days every day? Right? It's, well, you feed them some beer. That, that helps yep. stimulate the rumen, right? So that's why. It's not... It's not that it has to be that way for Kobe. And then why do you massage an animal? Well, is it going to make the meat more tender? No, not necessarily. But the average size of a farm in Japan is the size of my, my office here, right? And if you're an animal standing, you know, you can't move much and you're on feed for 500 days, you're going to get a little stiff and a little sore. And again, they're trying to do everything they can to reach that endpoint. And so massaging is just part of because of the, their environment there. Um, so yeah, that's probably more than you needed to know, but uh, that's at least my interpretation of why those things happen. That's super interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Um, tell me, this is probably a silly question, but do you ever get um, like attached to any of your <laughs> cattle and then have a hard time <laughs> when they have to go? <laughs> No, and, and so that you asked me the very first question. Um, the very first question is my background, right? Yeah. So I yeah. learned from a young age. I grew up. I grew up on a farm, showing animals, knowing that they go into the food supply chain, right? That's their. Yeah. That's that's the that's the goal. That's that's why they're designed. 
Um, and so, so I know I learned at a young age that this is, this is how it works. Um, and you're right. So we do have them for a long time, right? They live yeah. a good, long, healthy life. Right. Yeah. And that's the, that is the goal, right? That's, that's the best I can do. Um, and, and, and so, no, I don't, it's not a silly question because I, I can, but, but I learned from a young age that you don't, you can't get attached because this is why they're here. This is the goal. So. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so at this point in your career, you're teaching, you're raising Wagyu. What's next for you? Do you have, um, you know, as in terms of maybe your research project, something that you're excited to, to uh, research or anything on the horizon that uh, is really exciting for you? Um, yeah. So, well, I, I mean, I, that's probably a lot of things. Um, so a couple of things really exciting in, in the world of, of raising direct-to-consumer beef and, and specifically Wagyu. Um, uh, one, uh, the joint venture with uh, Miraflora. Yeah. Uh, and so they're really going to help us, you know, um, we've, we've, we've landed in that six to eight range and I've got that figured out. Um, we, but, but I need help. We need help, um, kind of, you know, producing a product that goes above and beyond that even, because there is a, there is a, there's a market, there's a need, uh, for that product. Um, and so that's, that's exciting. Um, and then just the expertise that they bring in terms of, of, uh, the business side, you know, marketing and, and, and the back end shipping and, and e-commerce and, and all that. So um, really excited to see where that, where that goes. Um, I, I raise cattle. I, I know how to raise the cattle. I don't, I don't, I'm learning the business side of it. And so, um, yeah. yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that partnership. Um, and then just, you know, new technology is exciting. Uh, and so there's a couple of things we're, we're toying with now. Um, one is, uh, again, it goes back to, back to that marbling scale, right? And that we in this country do not have the ability to, to label uh, an above prime product um, um, ob objectively, right? So it's all right now, it's just what you think. It's just subjective. Oh yeah, that looks like a, a six, to, six to an eight or whatever. Um, and that's kind of, you know, where we've gotten into trouble is because everybody's eyes a little bit different. And so there is technology coming out. There's a camera there's a there's an app um, that that we are we are going to purchase um, that that you take a picture of of the ribeye or the New York strip or the carcass ribeye um, at the at the 13th rib or, or um, and then it it will tell you the exact IMF intramuscular fat percentage which correlates back to that BMS score um, and so that's exciting that we will now be able to we will now be able to objectively label our product with, yeah, this is a six or yeah, this is a nine or, or you know, we're anywhere in between. Um, and so that's, that's exciting. And then the other one is I mentioned that 120 head, right? I could do, we could sell more beef than that. There's, there's tremendous demand for this, this high quality product, but it is really expensive to raise and own cows. Um, cause you think about, I mean, you have a cow that, that you maintain, you're putting inputs into a cow, um, for one calf a year, the whole year, right? 
and and so it's real. It's getting more and more expensive to own cows, the the factory, yeah. the mothers, right? And so again, we are in a unique situation here in Colorado, where um, there's a ton of dairies around us, uh, and dairies dairies um, classically, you know, just just bred their cows to Holstein bulls, and they had a dairy calf that on the market uh, wasn't worth wasn't really worth anything, and now they're switching to looking to um, to not only breed those dairy cows to beef bulls to have a better quality animal, um, but there's also potential to put embryos into into dairy cows and then buy those those calves back. And so we're looking into, again, this is technology. We're looking into, um, you know, how do we increase from 120 to whatever, whatever the number is? Um, how do we make more of these high quality genetics and animals and I think I think the the solution may be, or part of the solution may be, um, putting embryos into dairy cows, and, and kind of taking that approach. So I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited about the potential there. Um, yeah. So those are the those are the couple things that come come to mind. Research wise, um, I and this is not something I necessarily do, but there is a need for it. There's there's a lot of research from A and M and Washington State on on full blood or purebred Wagyu cattle and sort of what they do and how you feed them and, and what the, your expected results should be. Right. But there is very little research on crossbred. So like the F ones, the F twos, the, the ones that we're crossing with Angus. Um, and that's and honestly, you know, that's what most people are doing because they already have Angus cows or they already got Hereford cows and they're putting a Wagyu bull out there and making these crossbreds and there's there's no there's no data there's no research on okay how long should those cattle be on feed because they're different than a full blood um, right. what is the expectation if they're on feed for 450 days um, what kind of a diet should you feed them uh, so just all of that how, what do they gain per day you know so all of those questions as people are getting started um and and sort of the crossbred world uh there's there's really not much data to point to um, so there's a need there for some for some research. I wish I could would like to do some here. We're just um, not set up for it. So so it's just me on my own personal operation, kind of anecdotally doing. Well, I've done this for five years. This is kind of the results. This is you know I've tried this, and then I've tried this, and I've tried this, and this is what seems to work. So yeah, yeah. Um, my final question is, uh, do you typically pan sear in a cast iron pan maybe or do you put it on the grill what do you usually oh, do <laughs> great question yes and this is the important part because i yeah. can get you i can get you a, a bms8 steak right that's the most amazing you can't get it in a grocery store but if you burn that thing or if you ruin it then i can't help you right yeah um and so yes getting it cooked right and this this is a a, a common question getting it cooked right and i hate the answer i'm sorry because I, you know, I like to be outside and I like to grill and I like to smoke, right? And it's all, you know, that's all fun. But this product is not a great product for a grill because of all the things we've talked about, that marbling, that fat. Because what happens on a flame that starts to, that melts, it start, it'll melt at room temperature. It start, that fat starts to drip and you get a bunch of flame up and all of a sudden you've got a, a, burnt, a burnt steak, right? And so the very best way 
is you can use a smoker. I use my Traeger a lot. That works. That works well because you don't get you, you avoid that problem. Um, but the very best way, I just did this last night, and it works every single time. Is what we call the steakhouse method, um, and that's cast iron. Get it really hot on the stove, right, and sear both sides. Thickness will depend on how long, right? Um, so sear both sides, and then in the oven. Uh, at 400 degrees for, again, time will depend on thickness of the steak. Um, so it's the sear in the oven, and it is, it, if you get your times right, it is perfect, perfect every time. That's why it's perfect every time at a steakhouse. That is exactly how I cooked mine, and it was amazing. Yeah. So good, good. to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking all the time to talk to us today. This has been really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm excited to to share your story with everybody out there. So thank you. You bet. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>